0: All right. Hello. Hello, everyone. Just me here today. I've got an audience question here from Peter. It's about coffee, and I get asked about coffee quite a lot. So I'll try and cover what I know about the subject. Hey, Ryan, long time fan here. Love Dr. Wallach and all of everything you guys are doing. Just a quick question for you. Uh, What you guys think about coffee? I've seen mixed reviews, good and bad. What's the best type of coffee? And, or is it just uh, something that we should avoid? Thanks. And if you guys didn't know, you can leave voice messages just like this through Spotify or anchor. And I will leave the link in the description. And before I jump in here on coffee, just want to say you can find much more from me, including the books that I've written, the free versions of my books, the audio and video versions, many more free audiobooks, and more all on my website, noticebooks.org. Spelled not us, not And actually one of my books, Everything You Should Know About Healthy Blood Sugar, I do have a dehydration chapter in it. And I mention coffee because coffee is one of the things that speeds up the rate that we urinate. It's a diuretic, basically. So that would actually be the main thing to be concerned about. And it's not a huge concern. It's just if you're consuming things that make you urinate more, then you lose more water and you lose more water-soluble nutrients. So your salt, your B vitamins, calcium, potassium, magnesium, all this stuff, all these electrolytes are lost in urine. So if you urinate more, you need more of those nutrients. Now I drink coffee and I think it was appropriate to record this today because today was the first time in a long time, years, that I have not had a coffee in the morning because I've actually been wondering about this myself. First of all, is coffee slowing me down? Is it bad for me? Does it clog up my blood? There's many mixed opinions on this. I'm going to go through some of them that I can dig up here. And my first thought was to look at live blood analysis. But I do know people who do live blood analysis. And I know to be skeptical of it. Because if you're malnourished in any way, if you're lacking in nutrients, especially if you're already dehydrated, adding coffee is going to clog up your blood. It's going to make your blood vessels stick together. It's going to make them slow and sludgy. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the thing itself is bad because we can compensate for most of these things. For example, by being more hydrated. So I do drink coffee, but I drink water first. Salty water, actually, as soon as I wake up because we wake up dehydrated already. So it's a pretty bad habit to wake up dehydrated and then consume something that dehydrates you even more, which is coffee. And again, that's because it speeds up the rate that you urinate, so you're losing more water and more water-soluble nutrients, and now you're more dehydrated. So I rehydrate first before I have the coffee, and then I'll have some more salty water after the coffee, and then I'll pour my supplements, maybe an hour or two later. And of course, that's the 90 essential nutrients, it's loaded in B vitamins, I've got my double dose of the calcium, our bone and joint formula, Osteofx, and I usually throw another dash of plain plant-derived minerals in there as well, and I'll sip that through the middle part of the day. In fact, I'm sipping it right now. And by the way, just for context, I googled a list here of other diuretic foods, and I just want to show that it doesn't mean that the thing is bad because it's a diuretic. On this list from the Cleveland Clinic, are lemons, celery, garlic, onions, bell peppers, watermelon, cucumbers, ginger, grapes, asparagus, pineapple, and most of those foods are indisputably good for you. But it's appropriate to say here in a conversation about coffee that practically every food, if not every single food, literally, has both good and bad qualities. I really can't think of anything in life that does not have both a positive and a negative aspect to it. So some people choose to focus in on one or the other, whereas that's really not that appropriate. So coffee does have good qualities. Coffee actually does have a fair dose of antioxidants in it. And that's even instant coffee, ground coffee, or whole bean coffee. It all actually has antioxidants in it. And for one of Peter's questions there, you know, what is the best coffee? I usually say that whole bean coffee is the best. First of all, it has no weird additives. I mean, it may have chemical residues in it from pesticides it might have glyphosate in it etc etc but the powder itself when you're talking about pre-ground powder or instant coffee it could have contaminants in it it could have flour in it potentially it could have dirt in it it could have all kinds of things in it who knows it's powder it's brown powder and it would be easy to sneak a contaminant in there beans don't have that problem you can grind it yourself We grind our own beans here, my wife and I. A little manual grinder because the uh, electric ones are really loud and annoying. And a little minor benefit when you use a manual grinder, you kind of have to move a little bit. It's a little tiny little exercise in the morning. And I think that's important. I do think we should start moving in the morning. Do some push-ups, swing your arms around, get the blood flowing. If not doing a full-blown workout, very good time to do it. And if I am concerned about coffee slowing me down at all or slowing my blood down, You can most definitely go and speed your blood up by doing exercise, any exercise. Again, some jumping jacks or some jumping on a little rebounder trampoline or push-ups, anything. So in addition to the possibility of contaminants with instant coffee or pre-ground coffee, there's slightly less caffeine and more acrylamide. Now, acrylamide is somewhat controversial. It's debatable on how potent of a carcinogen acrylamide is, but... We take acrylamide seriously. The reason we have baked potato skins on our bad list is because of acrylamide. The crispier the skin, the more acrylamide there is. But this is true with almost every baked good, at least when you're talking about things like crackers and bread and cookies and cereals. And the National Cancer Institute here is telling me that even canned black olives, prune juice... And of course, french fries and potato chips, they all have acrylamide. And we do have a cookbook, by the way, Dr. Wallach's Cooking Without the Bad Foods by Chef Norman, and I edited and published that book. And for many of our crackers, breads, and cookies, we like to cook at low temperature or bake at low temperature, by the way, which to us means 300 degrees Fahrenheit, because sugar burns at 350 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the smoke point, which is 177 Celsius. So when we bake at 300, we're avoiding burning the sugar, and I suspect that the reason the crackers, bread, cookies, and breakfast cereals are on this list of acrylamide foods is because there's sugar in all of those, and the sugar is burned at 350 Fahrenheit. And a lot of recipes, whether it's gluten-free or not, by the way, this has nothing to do with gluten, a lot of recipes call for baking crackers at 400, and some cookies at 400, and that's just you're guaranteeing that a lot of stuff is getting burned and acrylamide is going to be forming. So we like to bake at lower temperature. And in our cookbook, a lot of our recipes are set down at that 300 level. And we say in it that you can basically take any recipe and lower the temperature, especially if you're going to use butter instead of clarified butter, because butter will also burn above 300. So we try and bake everything at 300. It just means that you need to bake it longer, basically. But that way you can use butter, which is the most common cooking fat available. You don't have to make the clarified butter or buy the ghee. Of course, we don't recommend using oils, which most regular processed foods will have. But anyways, this tangent here is because of acrylamide, and apparently instant coffee has more acrylamide than regular coffee, but it contains most of the same antioxidants. And that's from healthline.com here. And although there is antioxidants in coffee, it doesn't seem to be that significant. If we're using the oxygen radical absorbance capacity, ORAC, which we use ORAC. There's other measurements of antioxidants, but we use ORAC. There's only a couple of thousand if you're drinking a cup or two. Maybe you'll get as much as 5,000 if you're drinking two cups or so. It's going to vary depending on the coffee and... 5,000 sounds like a big number. That's actually what the USDA recommends, 3 to 5,000 ORAC per day. But we recommend 10 or 20 times more than that. As usual, the government recommends basically the bare minimum. And we recommend emulating what the longest-lived people do, and they will get much closer to 50,000 ORAC per day. But we like to recommend going as far as 100,000 or even more. And that's actually not difficult to do in supplements. It's very easy to do in supplements especially with some of our products like the Beyond Tangy Tangerine tablets, which have 40,000 ORAC per tablet. And the recommended daily dose, according to us and Dr. Wallach, is actually four tablets per day. So you're getting more than twice what the longest of populations get, or even three times what they get. And you can do that year-round for quite cheap. This is like less than $3 a day for that product. So I'm just saying, if you're drinking coffee for the antioxidant benefit you're going to need to drink a heck of a lot of coffee to do so. In fact, you'll be drinking so much that you'll be dumping many of your other nutrients, your water-soluble nutrients, into your water. You're basically going to dehydrate yourself trying to get antioxidants, and that's not good. But there are some antioxidants in it, so this is not a completely negligible number. You're adding to your antioxidant count, and I think that's good. I do think the live blood analysis thing is inconclusive. I would like to test that on myself myself or other people I know who are fully nourished and fully hydrated before they do the live blood analysis. Now, some people talk about adrenal depletion, like The Truth About Coffee by Marina Kushner, which I would jump in and say that adrenal exhaustion or adrenal depletion or chronic fatigue, this is much more likely a fatty nutrient deficiency. We blame it mostly on gluten intolerance and EMF, actually. I blame it almost mainly on EMF. But if you have a gluten intolerance, or you're avoiding cholesterol, or you're on a statin drug or something like that, then you're not going to be able to make your adrenal hormones properly. Your adrenal hormones are made from cholesterol, just like your sex hormones, your steroid hormones. Cholesterol is the master steroid in the body. So the truth about coffee focuses mainly on women, but women have a lot of problems going on. Their main problem is listening to doctors. They listen to doctors about fat and cholesterol, so they avoid fat and cholesterol much more than men. They start taking drugs early, like antibiotics and birth control, and even painkillers and stuff for menstrual pain. They just, in general, women listen to doctors more than men. This is why women have a much higher incidence of MS, ALS, all this stuff. Many, many different diseases because they listen to doctors and doctors give them terrible advice. So, of course, they're going to be the ones who are suffering from adrenal exhaustion more. Hopefully, that doesn't sound too simplistic. I just don't think uh, we should focus in on the adrenal exhaustion part without taking into consideration the fatty nutrients, nutrient depletion in general, nutrient deficiency in general in our society, and the massive, massive problem of listening to doctors. Now what Marina Kushner did say is that coffee is highly addictive, and this is my main problem with it. I don't like being addicted. I started picking up substance addictions at a very young age, I started smoking cigarettes at 10 years old, and marijuana at 11 years old, and other hardcore drugs soon after that. And I didn't start drinking coffee until I was about 22, and right away I picked it up as an addiction. I was under no illusion that this was something other than an addiction. And why I thought that is because coffee's actually pretty gross. Just like a cigarette. Your first cigarette is disgusting. Your second cigarette is also disgusting. If you quit for a while and you have it again, it's disgusting. You, you know how gross it is. We get a little bit numb to that when we do it all the time. Cigarettes have been called the unpleasurable pleasure. And I would say the same thing about coffee. And I would also say that's one reason why seems most people put some sort of flavoring agent in it. They put sugar, or a sweetener, a stevia, or cream, or a creamer, which I'm still not even sure what a creamer is actually. I don't use any of this stuff. I always like my coffee black, but that word like, again, that's acknowledging the grossness of it. Just like cigarettes, it's the unpleasurable pleasure. I don't want a flavored cigarello. Just give me the straight stuff, right? Now, I like to put butter in my coffee, actually, and I wanted to throw this in there because I do think that this reduces the dehydration effect, number one. Number two, it gives you some good nutrients. Butter is highly nutritious. And butter hardly has any other proteins in it, by the way. This is one reason why many people react negatively to milk or cream or cheese Because those do have proteins in it intact. But the butter doesn't have very much protein in it. So that's why I've noticed that there's many people who can't tolerate dairy, in quotes. But they can tolerate butter. So I love butter. Dr. Wallach says a stick of butter a day keeps the doctor away. And I agree. And so I put a big heap of butter in my coffee. It definitely makes it less disgusting. And yeah, I think it uh, lowers the dehydration effect there. And you could even use salted butter. I like to, to just put a dash of salt in it. We usually don't cook with salted butter, by the way. We add salt into our dishes after. Main reason being that they just put trash salt in the, in the butter, they just put table salt in it. So we just, we just buy unsalted butter and put our own good salt, sea salt or Himalayan salt. We put that in our butter afterwards. So I think that would dampen this adrenal exhaustion part. And definitely, of course, you know, we want to be gluten-free and eating lots of good fats so so that we're absorbing it. We want to consume it and absorb it. But the addictiveness, yeah, this is why I wanted to test out other options for myself. Problem is, it's pretty inconvenient to go without coffee. This morning, I was quite groggy. I started my day off, by the way, today with Pollen Burst, a product of ours that's like an energy drink based on pollen. And it's almost too effective as an energy drink. My heart rate was just going wild. And it's a cold drink. I guess I could have heated it up, but I like the hot drink. You know, the Ayurvedics, the Indians and other cultures, but they believe that you're either hot or cold. Their theory is much more complicated than this. This is a kindergarten version. But they believe there are hot people and cold people. People who run cold, basically, which is what I would say I am, people who run cold naturally tend to prefer the hot stuff, hot beverages, hot meals. And people who run warm tend to prefer cold stuff. And I actually live with Chef Norman up in Canada. I'm not there right now, but I know he runs hot and I run cold. And yeah, it's strange that I'm always preferring everything hot. I I almost don't want to eat anything cold, but he's the opposite. He loves cold stuff. So the only reason for bringing this up is if I'm ever looking to replace coffee with something, it has to be hot or I'm just not going to enjoy it. For a couple of years, I even just was on hot water. Just hot water with some salt in it or some lemon in it. That's definitely not as pleasurable. I basically just wanted to see if I can live without coffee because I am bothered by the addictive component of it. I introduced this addiction later in life and I don't feel like I needed it, but I do actually enjoy it, even if it's gross and all that. I I do enjoy it. It gives me my only time of peace in the day, actually. It's my morning coffee coffee. And I read a book during that time, and then usually I'll pick up the phone, and now i got to start work, basically, for the rest of the day. So without that time of peace in the morning, I can become pretty grouchy. And I think it's only partially because of the actual coffee itself, and even more so because that's my time of peace. So after the pollen burst this morning, by the way, I was not satisfied, but I was too jacked up from the caffeine-like effect of it that I couldn't have a coffee at that point. That would be an overload for me. So I had some apple cider vinegar with some raw honey, which was just recently recommended in this Bragg apple cider vinegar book that I gave a bad review to, but I said, hey, I'll try it. My wife's been doing that. Two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar with two tablespoons of honey. It was all right. Makes the apple cider vinegar more bearable, but it's definitely not something I'm going to sip and enjoy in my morning. After that, I had a cup of bone broth that we just made, bone and vegetable broth. From bone and vegetable scraps that we collect and keep them in the freezer and make a big batch of bone broth now that's very enjoyable it's very pleasurable and it's nice and hot i could do that every morning but it's a little bit inconvenient i usually like to make one big batch of bone broth for a week and i usually make my rice with it and that's like a week worth of rice it's just not that much bone broth to go around i would have to go buy extra bones to make this bone broth here it's summer in texas so You know, you're making bone broth on the stove, you're heating the place up even more. Up north in Canada, we don't have an air conditioner. And even here, I don't like air conditioners because of positive ions, if you didn't know about that. Air conditioners pump the atmosphere full of positive ions, which are bad for us. So I'm just saying, making bone broth all the time is not that convenient. Even though it is very pleasurable and very nutritious, to me there would be absolutely no question of which one was better. It would be bone broth every single time would win. But coffee is ubiquitous, coffee is cheap, coffee is very fast to make, unlike bone broth. And I don't like buying bone broth from the store, I like to make it myself. So I know that was a little bit of an off-topic rant here, but I know a lot of people are trying to quit coffee for one reason or another, and they're trying these other things like uh, mud water, the mushroom coffee, or matcha, or yeah, bone broth. If you can afford bone broth all the time, and it's convenient all the time, then that is fantastic. It really, really is. I just, I don't see myself making bone broth more than once a week. And frankly, we don't have enough bones and and kitchen scraps laying around to do that. We're not a whole homestead here. We've only got so much scraps. So I don't know what other convenient warm beverage I would switch to. I never found the mud water very pleasurable. My wife didn't like it either. And other mushroom coffees, I've tried them. Even our company, by the way, Young we sell coffee. We have a whole coffee company that we have kind of absorbed. And some of our products also have these mushroom things in it. I was on them for a while, but it's just not as pleasurable as coffee. I have to admit that. I should say that I've also lived in one of the blue zones, one of the famous ones, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. And they grow coffee there and they love coffee there. They all drink coffee there usually just in the morning, sometimes also in the afternoon, during or after the siesta, the hottest part of the day. Basically, everyone takes a break, and they usually just take a nap or, yeah, have a coffee. Bit of a weird thing to do in the hottest part of the day, but I'm just saying, they have very excellent health, even though the Western ways have infiltrated the jungle, and they're doing lots of crazy things like take pharmaceutical drugs and drink Coca-Cola and... Use vegetable oil now. You know, these are habits that they didn't have culturally very long ago. But they did drink coffee generations ago, and they still drink coffee today. So moving on, there is this book here. It's called Coffee is Good for You. Well, it's it's Coffee is Bad for You, but the bad is X'd out. And then it says good written in. That's what the cover is. But it's actually called Coffee is Good for You. It's by Robert Davis. I gave this book a pretty terrible review. A few years ago because it was one of these books that was so skeptical that it ended up just saying nothing it's just non-information you know it'll say this study shows this but this is why you shouldn't believe this study so by the end of the book you've got no advice You, you just you've gained nothing other than a skepticism for studies and i agree to be skeptical of studies but when you look at most of the studies on coffee it seems they're mostly positive actually There's a lot of people looking for harm from coffee and there's not a lot of people really finding it. And every food, every plant has numerous phytochemicals, plant chemicals. We could call them plant nutrients if we consider them good for us. Chemical is usually a word that we use when we don't like the thing, but technically they're all chemicals. So we're just saying that there's tons of plant chemicals in coffee just like there is in every single plant on earth. These include polyphenols. Chlorogenic acid, quenic acid, diterpenes, cafestol, caweol. I know these are exotic sounding things, but there's probably hundreds of them actually. And I don't think science has all of them figured out or even mapped. Doesn't matter. Just saying. There's all kinds of plant chemicals in here. And some of them are probably going to be good. Some of them are probably going to be bad. But overall, it seems that there is a benefit. Harvard University here says low to moderate doses of caffeine, which is 50 to 300 milligrams, may cause increased alertness, duh, coffee, energy, and ability to concentrate, while higher doses may have negative effects, such as anxiety, restlessness, insomnia, and increased heart rate. So here, they're speaking to the balance. We don't want too much coffee. Now I will say that a lot of people are talking about the dose around three to five cups per day which would be somewhere around 400 milligrams of caffeine. Most of these health agencies and universities will say that dose is fine. We put our dose lower, our recommended dose, down to one or two cups of coffee per day. And one of the reasons is because we're very strong on good digestion and being gluten-free so that you're actually absorbing more caffeine. I used to be able to drink like 10 or more cups of coffee per day. I was a coffee addict for a while. I was basically running on coffee. On the questionnaire that we give to people so that we can give them a recommendation for foods and products, the question is on there, do you drink coffee? And it's only on there to discover if they're a coffee addict because that is a problem. First, you will be getting the massive dehydration effect from the diuretic in it. And yeah, you'll be possibly creating some of these anxiety, restlessness, insomnia, increased heart rate, these types of symptoms that people come to us with anyways. People come to us and say, hey, I have anxiety. What do I do? Well, if they're drinking six or ten cups of coffee a day, then that's the answer. Stop drinking so much coffee. But the point in saying the gluten-free thing, the digestion thing, is because I used to be able to drink that much coffee. Now I can only drink two is my maximum. Or yeah, I'm bouncing off the walls and I might get this anxiety, restlessness, and maybe even insomnia because we're absorbing more of the caffeine now. That also goes for drugs. It goes for vitamins and minerals and all this stuff. When your digestion is working correctly, you should be absorbing more of all of this stuff. So we often start people with a digestion protocol, clean up their diet, and they should actually not be able to drink as much physically. Their body should start to reject it or start to have these negative symptoms of it. So if you are one of the people that drinks eight or 10 cups a day, if you clean up your diet, then you probably will not be able to drink that much without getting these negative effects. And that's good. It shows that your body's working more correctly. Caffeine is very powerful. We should not be able to tolerate very much of it if you're absorbing it. Now, this Harvard review here that I'm reading has some interesting things about uh, many different diseases here. Here for cancer, coffee may affect how cancer develops, ranging from the initiation of a cancer cell to its death. For example, coffee may stimulate the production of bile acids, and speed digestion through the colon, which can lower the amount of carcinogens to which the colon tissue is exposed. So, if you have waste sitting in the colon, your large intestine, coffee should be stimulating the production of bile acids here, and basically washing out the colon. Lots of people know that coffee can help them with their constipation. Of course, we want to eliminate the source of the constipation, but... It can be a pretty easy way to flush the system out, especially for people who don't drink coffee. Give them a nice tall cup of coffee, they might run to the bathroom. That's good, because if the waste sits around the colon too long, then it can be reabsorbed into the blood. That's not good. So we can create a really toxic environment down there in our lower intestine, our large intestine, if we're not eliminating the waste regularly. Constipation is a big problem. And it's a very, very, very common problem as well. So regular coffee drinkers, this may be helping them to stay regular. And that's a good point here from Harvard. That, that would greatly reduce the colon tissue exposed to these wastes. And, and that should also reduce the actual cancers that could happen down here in the colon, in the prostate, in the rectum, any, anywhere down here in the lower regions that waste might be sitting around. They say here coffee has also been associated with decreased estrogen levels, and estrogen is a growth hormone, and a lot of people say that excess estrogen leads to cancer, or leads to many cancers. And they have a study here showing that it may interfere with the growth and spread of cancer cells themselves. They say coffee also appears to lower inflammation, a risk factor for many cancers. Now I don't want this to sound like a panacea thing here, like coffee is incredibly good, I don't know how much it lowers inflammation and we always have to point out that we much prefer to stop the source of the inflammation, which is probably processed foods and nutrient deficiencies, rather than use any medicine to combat inflammation. So even if coffee lowers inflammation, just like turmeric, even if turmeric lowers inflammation, We don't want to rely on the medicinal benefits of the plant. We don't want to rely on any medicine. We want to stop the actual source of the inflammation. But I'm just pointing out here that there is quite a bit of evidence that there's actually anti-cancer effects for coffee. And of course, they point out here the uproar in California in 2018 because there was a label put on coffee products talking about the acrylamide, which we already talked about. And from what I know, it is a very minor amount of acrylamide, at least compared to the big ones like baked goods with sugar that's been cooked beyond its smoke point and baked potato skins and any chip or French fry or anything like that that has the skins on it as well. Again, it is debatable on how potent of a carcinogen acrylamide is. So that's why we singled out the big source, especially the potato skins, baked potato skins. We didn't put coffee on our bad list. We own a coffee company. We sell coffee. Most people that I know in the business drink coffee. Even Dr. Gundry, who has a much longer list than Dr. Wallach, bad food list, even he recommends drinking coffee. The only people that I see not recommending coffee, well, most of them, are more on the alkaline theory, which they're wrong about, by the way. They're just, they're wrong. I don't mean to offend people, but... You can eat acid foods and be alkaline. This is a fact. You can drink coffee, you can eat meat, you can drink alcohol, and you can still be alkaline because if your body has enough nutrients, B vitamins, and especially calcium, water-soluble nutrients in general, if you're properly nourished, you will be alkaline. Me, if I drink two glasses of wine, yeah, I feel groggy and you know I don't feel great, but kick that up to three. I might get a little green mark underneath my copper disc that I wear on my wrist that's showing me that I've become acidic. It can happen very quickly. It would probably happen if I ate a couple of bags of potato chips. It would probably happen if I did eat meat, just like I normally do, and drink coffee just like I normally do. If I did that for a week without supplementing, I probably would turn a bit green underneath the copper, meaning I would turn acidic because of the nutrient deficiency, not because of the so-called acidic foods themselves. And of course, there's extremely acidic foods like lemon and even apple cider vinegar and salt that are patently good for us. So the acid alkaline food concept or the alkaline diet was just incorrect. Just wanted to point out that those are the people who are usually against coffee. They're saying it makes you acidic. Well, it does speed up the rate that you lose your water-soluble nutrients, especially the B vitamins and the calcium. That does not mean it makes you acidic. It means that nutrient deficiency makes you acidic and that coffee will speed up your nutrient loss. Well, in my book, Everything You Should Know About Healthy Blood Sugar, I already mentioned that I have a dehydration chapter. So here Harvard's talking about type 2 diabetes and they're saying, although ingestion of caffeine can increase blood sugar in the short term, long-term studies have shown that habitual coffee drinkers have a lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes compared with non-drinkers. Remember, correlation does not equal causation. I included it in my book just so that people are aware that it's making you dump minerals and other nutrients faster, and type 2 diabetes is a nutrient deficiency. Not going to get fully into it right here. You can check my book out for that. The free audio version is here on this podcast, Notice and Friends. You're just going to have to scroll down a bit, and I don't know what other habits might be causing this lower risk, but I tend to think actually that People who drink coffee, or even people who, who smoke cigarettes and stuff, a lot of times they're using these substances in lieu of food. In lieu of food. There's a lot of smokers who don't eat a lot of food. So, in coffee drinkers. There's a lot of people who prefer to have a coffee instead of having food. So they're going to be less at risk for diseases that are caused by foods. I just said that type 2 diabetes is a nutrient deficiency at root, but in the book I explain in great detail that Food exacerbates the problem big time. We need nutrients to process sugar in all food. So the more food you eat and the more sugar you eat specifically, the more of those nutrients you need. If we're already in a state of nutrient deficiency, this will exacerbate the problem. So that may be the correlation they're finding here, that coffee drinkers may be eating less food overall. And so they'll have less diseases caused by foods. And they're pointing out here that coffee does have a bit of magnesium in it. That may improve the effectiveness of insulin and glucose metabolism in the body. Now, that may be true, but I'm going to ignore that. And they did say here that caffeinated coffee showed a slightly greater benefit than decaffeinated coffee. I think that's because the caffeine would be improving circulation, improving blood flow. And actually, in this type 2 diabetes meta-analysis, they were showing that the highest intake of coffee, up to 10 cups a day, had the highest decrease of risk of type 2 diabetes, which is kind of surprising for me. I still wouldn't recommend that much, and still recommend taking your nutrients so that you're not putting yourself at risk for nutrient depletion from the increased excessive urination. But hey, that's interesting to me. So I think for Peter's question here, I think it's pretty clear that the benefits outweigh the negatives. And my little experiment with quitting coffee for today, it, it might only be for today. Honestly, my morning today was pretty lame. And I you know, had to have three different things to try and satisfy my craving to just sit in peace with a warm beverage in the morning. I'm definitely not sure it's worth the stress of quitting an addictive substance. I really don't like the fact that I am addicted, patently addicted to coffee, but I do only have it once in the day, and I don't consider it a very big deal. Now, here's something that I didn't know. So I drink French press coffee most of the time, by the way. And they're calling this unfiltered coffee. So French press and Turkish coffees, basically. Contains diterpenes, substances that can raise the bad LDL, cholesterol, and triglycerides. Triglycerides basically being a measure of inflammation here. Espresso coffee contains moderate amounts of diterpenes. But filtered coffee, drip-brewed coffee, standard American coffee, or as much as the world would call it, crappy American coffee, and instant coffee contain almost no diterpenes as the filtering and processing of these coffee types removes the diterpenes. So here in Texas, actually, I I have been drinking the drip-brewed coffee, the American style coffee, just with a regular coffee maker. I definitely don't notice any difference, actually. But yeah, apparently when I'm at home with my French press uh, thinking it's better, maybe it's not. Now you see, there can be quite a lot of confusing things in here, but yeah, overall it seems to me that there's more good than bad here. In the very famous Harvard Nurses Health Study with 83,000 women, they found that drinking four cups or more each day was associated with a 20% lower risk of stroke compared with non-drinkers. Decaffeinated coffee also showed an association with two or more cups daily and an 11% lower stroke risk. The authors found no association with other caffeinated drinks such as tea and soda. Interesting. You know, we all think that tea is just obviously better than coffee. Well, hey. There's one piece of evidence pointing that that's not true. And these results suggest that it's the coffee rather than the caffeine that may be protective against the stroke here. I have to throw in comments here for anybody who's listening who's not familiar with our message already. Dr. Wallach and others sued the FDA in order to secure the qualified health claim that omega-3 essential fatty acid may prevent heart attacks, stroke, and various forms of blood clotting and thrombosis, This is why if you go to your grocery store, look at any omega-3 supplement, it'll probably say on the label, may prevent heart attack and stroke, because that's a qualified health claim that, you know, we have legally gained from the FDA. Before that, you were able to say eating foods rich in omega-3 essential fatty acid may prevent heart attack and stroke and all these various thromboses and blood clotting problems. So I'm just saying, they're showing a reduced risk of stroke here, but... We have to point out what the actual cause of stroke is. It is nutrient deficiency. Omega-3 is one of the major nutrients that are involved protecting us against stroke. There's another large cohort study with 37,514 women, which concluded that moderate coffee drinking of two to three cups a day was associated with a 21% reduced risk of heart disease. And there's some other meta-analysis studies here showing an overall 21% lower risk of cardiovascular disease deaths compared with non-drinkers. Another meta-analysis here, 36 studies, including both men and women, showing that same moderate intake of three to five cups per day was linked with a 15% lower risk of cardiovascular disease. And interestingly, heavier coffee intake of six cups or more was neither associated with a higher nor a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. So, I don't think that's a good point there, actually, because higher or lower risk compared to what? Compared to your average American's risk factor? Well... So heavier coffee intake puts them in the same risk category as the average American, which I would say that's not good. Moving on to depression. Harvard is claiming here that the polyphenols in both caffeinated and decaffeinated coffee can act as antioxidants to reduce damaging oxidative stress and inflammation of cells. It may have neurological benefits in some people and act as an antidepressant. Yeah, maybe. I already mentioned I was pretty grouchy this morning without my coffee and i'm sure we all know somebody if not us being that person themselves who is very groggy and grouchy without their coffee caffeine may affect mental states such as increasing alertness and attention reducing anxiety and improving mood sure moderate intake of caffeine that's less than six cups of coffee per day has been associated with a lower risk of depression and suicide and of course they mentioned that higher doses may increase the anxiety restlessness and insomnia as we already talked about a big cohort study here with 263,923 participants from the National Institutes of Health and the American Association of Retired Persons found that those who drank four or more cups of coffee a day were almost 10% less likely to become depressed than those who drank none. Well, okay, 10% is not a huge reduction, but statistically, I mean, not a huge reduction, but sure. Another meta-analysis here with 330,677 participants found a 24% reduced risk of depression, that's much better, when comparing the highest, 4.5 cups a day, to the lowest, which is less than one cup per day. And they found an 8% decreased risk of depression with each additional cup of coffee consumed. So the more coffee they consumed, the less depressed they were. And to be clear, that 24% reduced risk was comparing the highest coffee drinkers to the lowest coffee drinkers. And they also found a 28% reduced risk of depression comparing the highest to lowest intakes of caffeine in general. I know this uh, whole talk here was probably quite a bit deeper than was expected from that little question from Peter, but I enjoyed this actually. Like I said, I'm debating whether I should quit it or not. Do I need it or not? You know, is it worth it or not? Should I be making a big deal about this or not? And hey, reading all these things is making me feel a lot better about it, making me feel like I probably shouldn't sweat it. They're talking here about Parkinson's disease. There is consistent evidence from epidemiologic studies that a higher consumption of caffeine is associated with lower risk of Parkinson's disease. The caffeine in coffee has been found in animal and cell studies to protect cells in the brain that produce dopamine. I will also jump in here and say that nicotine has also been shown to be associated with lower Parkinson's disease risk, which is something that many people don't want to talk about. But it's one thing that the... People who argue against the smoking dogma point out, they say, hey, there is actually a decreased risk of Parkinson's in many studies with the use of nicotine. So caffeine gets thrown in there as well. Probably similar stimulant effects there. So there's several studies here talking about the reduced risk of Parkinson's disease and caffeine intake. There's also one here, the cardiovascular risk factors, aging and dementia study, which is again, looking at the three to five cups of coffee a day at midlife being associated with a significantly decreased risk of Alzheimer's disease later in life compared with low-coffee drinkers. However, three systematic reviews were inconclusive about coffee's effect on Alzheimer's disease due to a limited number of studies and a high variation in study types that produced mixed findings. Overall, the results suggested a trend towards a protective effect of caffeine against late-life dementia and Alzheimer's disease, but no definitive statements could be made. I'm going to skip this section on gallstones here, but overall, mortality is interesting to me. In a large cohort of more than 200,000 participants followed for up to 30 years, an association was found between drinking moderate amounts of coffee and lower risk of early death. Compared with non-drinkers, those who drank 3-5 to five cups of coffee daily were 15% less likely to die early from all causes, including cardiovascular disease, suicide, and Parkinson's disease. Both caffeinated and decaffeinated coffee provided benefits. The authors suggested that bioactive compounds in coffee may be responsible for interfering with disease development by reducing inflammation and insulin resistance. Another large cohort study with more than 500,000 people followed for 10 years. An association was found between drinking higher amounts of coffee and lower rates of death from all causes. Compared with non-drinkers, those drinking 6-7 to seven cups daily had a 16% lower risk of early death. A protective association was also found in those who drank 8 or more cups daily. The protective effect was present regardless of a genetic predisposition to either faster or slower caffeine metabolism. Instant and decaffeinated coffee also showed a similar health benefit. Well, some of this stuff surprised me, guys. And I definitely didn't expect anyone to claim or any evidence to show that American drip coffee was any better than French press or Turkish coffee. I mean, that's out of left field for me. But yeah, overall, I feel better about drinking coffee after doing this little research here. Of course, making sure to remember the stuff we talked about at the beginning, that yeah, you want to remain hydrated. You want to be aware that you will be losing certain nutrients from the diuretic effect. And to be fair, there's quite a popular article here that I see come up quite a bit from 2006. It's called Coffee and Health, a Review of Recent Human Research. I'm here on PubMed. And they summarize basically the same stuff that Harvard just said there that may prevent several chronic diseases, including type 2 diabetes, Parkinson's, and liver disease, and that most studies have not found coffee consumption to be associated with a significantly increased cardiovascular disease risk. But they put in this, however, and I think a lot of people jump on this, however, coffee consumption is associated with increases in several cardiovascular disease risk factors, including blood pressure and plasma homocysteine. So... Your blood pressure can go up from coffee. Sure, I would say this is because the coffee is depleting those electrolyte nutrients. That's what your body needs to have healthy blood pressure, especially the calcium, the magnesium, and the omega-3, again, very important for healthy blood pressure. And they admit here that there is little evidence of health risks and some evidence of health benefits. And the review, yeah, basically reiterated a lot of what Harvard said there so overall i think that was a very interesting review of coffee i know it was a simple question here but what have we learned hey even the instant coffee doesn't seem to be that bad the american drip coffee somehow comes out with a pretty good score here and actually increased coffee consumption beyond what i would recommend seems to have a protective effect on many different diseases hopefully this podcast helped you make some sense out of this i enjoyed it if anybody else wants to leave me a voice message check the description of this podcast and click the link leave me a message remember that you can find more from me including my books especially my health books fake diseases and everything you should know about healthy blood sugar you can find those on my website noticebooks.org once again spelled not us not usbooks.org of course the free versions are on the website as well in the audiobook section there's free video and audiobook versions of all of my books many other audiobooks there as well as on this podcast here follow the podcast if you haven't already most of you are on spotify so you can see lots of interesting talks that i post here with myself and guests and just some other lectures and talks and audiobooks that i find interesting or useful or stimulating so we can all learn and grow here together i appreciate all of you who listened especially those who listen all the way to the end here And before I go, I'm going to share a song. This is a new tradition that I've started. Most of my podcasts here are pretty serious. This one was lighthearted, but I think it was still kind of heavy on information. So I'm enjoying this, putting a song in here at the end, whichever song is in my mind at the time, just to wind us all down, put our brains at rest before we jump on to the next thing. And today the song in my mind is All of Me sung by willie nelson here but originally written and performed by the great seymour simmons but i love the willie nelson version from his fantastic album stardust i hope you enjoy it too appreciate you once again until next time
1: Take all of me Can't you see That I'm no good without you Take my arms I won't lose them Take my lips I'll never use them Your goodbye Left me with eyes that cry and I know that I am no good without you. You took part that once was my heart, so why not take all of? Take my lips, I'll never use them. Your goodbye left me lies to cry. And I know that I am no good now. you. You took part that once was my heart. So why not take all of They are